Jack, thanks so much uh, for helping lead us this morning and for such wonderful song choices and the, the dulcimer. Uh, before I pray and get us into the text quickly, uh, uh, I think if my memory uh, is correct that the first gathering of the men's lunch on Thursday this week, and I think you can go to the website and see it, is actually for the first meetup meeting at Bar Louie up at the end of... Uh, uh, Logan Atosa, or at the end of university. Um, uh, so uh, double check the website, but I see heads nodding for some that are involved in that. And then the following weeks, except maybe for the end week, it'll be meeting at the church when you bring your own lunch. But uh, they thought it'd be good to gather outside, but you can, can double check that. Let's pray. Father, thanks for so many folks who uh, labor in so many ways that you have called with their gifts into UPC. Thank you for so many missionaries uh, that this church has and does love and encourage all around the world. Thank you for bringing Jonathan and Ashley and their family from uh, a dozen years or so in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and uh, to bring that wisdom along with uh, labors in your church in the States to us as he directs our student ministries. Now open us as we open your book. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week we're going back into parables for a few weeks, but I wanted to take these two weeks uh, aside uh, to hit a couple of themes that I think uh, UPC and I think all of our churches really need reminders of. Uh, that are deep on my heart as I try to pay attention to what's going on in the broader church. If you weren't with us last week, we looked at Psalm 100, which at the center of it says uh, what we've proclaimed this morning, that He has made us. We are His. We didn't make ourselves. Uh, the new birth, the new reality, the new age that began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, is all His doing even as the first creation was His doing we said last week uh, in Psalm 100 that the, the backside of the gratitude, the thanksgiving that's called for in the middle verse of that psalm is that uh, if we are not full of gratitude, and ultimately gratitude and thanksgiving point us to God, whether we're believers or not, they aim that direction. But without that, the human heart fills with resentment. And when resentment grows, revenge is not far behind. And we looked at how that's the strategy of our adversary, our enemy, the devil. You see it all through the chain of Scripture. And we closed out last week looking at Job as the classic example of uh, the test that God laid uh, before us. That uh, in the midst of some of the greatest suffering anyone has ever suffered... Uh, he refused to not be grateful and full of praise for God. Though his wife said, uh, uh, curse God and die, he said, shall we receive good from the Lord and, and not bad, not even the evil that has come into the world that God has allowed? And the book ends, I reminded you at the end of last week, uh, with this remarkable thing that when Job, who is still in the midst of his suffering, prays for his, quote, friends, who have, in, who have in many ways been enemies. 
they think he's distorted what God is like, but God himself says, no, Job is the one who got it mainly right, but needed to be humbled a little bit more. And when Job prays for those friends, that's when God forgives them. And I know of no clearer image of the greater than Job, the greatest sufferer of all, God's eternal Son incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the picture. So remember that that gratitude, that thanksgiving, that worship is what protects us from resentment and protects us from anger and revenge. And that's true for individuals, it's true for family cultures, it's true for corporate cultures, it's true for national cultures. And if you want to look at the devil's work, don't look at just the words that people are saying. Look at how gratitude and resentment and revenge fit into the plan of actions, because that's the pattern of Scripture. This morning, uh, and it's fitting that it's the Lord's table, uh, I want us... uh, to look at a reality uh, of God triune. I was so glad Jack had chosen already uh, to focus on the Apostles' Creed. We're going to look ever so briefly at one section of the Nicene Creed in a few minutes. Um, But especially in the triune Godhead, I want us to look at the eternally begotten Son. And I want that to lead us to the table because whose table is it? Which Lord? He's the Lord that is incarnate, but also the second person of the eternal Godhead. And why do we say that to come to this table, though it's not Presbyterian, it's not UPC's table, but that to come to it, you need to respond to an invitation from the Lord of the table and make your response and your faith and repentance public in a church that honors Him, because it's not just about you as an individual. It's about the Lord whose table it is. It's not a sentimental religious act, but it's a picture of coming to the table that has been opened by the arms of Jesus on the cross. And there the gateway if we repent and respond. So moving quickly, uh, I made shorter notes and I promised myself I'd stick to them uh, because we've got the table coming. So you're going to have to listen fast. And I remind you that uh, uh, if God is gracious in this way as He is most weeks, it will be recorded so you can go back and pick up what you don't hear the first time. Because I really think, not because it's my sermon, but because of what Scripture says, these are things on which we need to dwell. First, John's Gospel, the triune God, and the eternally begotten God. Rather than reading the text as a whole, For the sake of time, I'm just going to read the key verses that we're looking at as we go along. First, verses 1 to 3, John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What's being written here? This beginning is the beginning of what we call time. That's hard to think about. 
that when it says he was already in the beginning, it's when everything was made, when time was made, he was already there. And he had already been there and never not been there because he was eternally with the Father. He was the eternal Word. It's the beginning of all things. This Word, this Son of God, as John later says in the chapter, existed before what we call beginning, was with. The pronoun in Greek is pros, which is towards. It's used in John almost always of one person being next to another person. So it's saying that this person, the Word, was next to the person of the Father, was next to God, and indeed was God. What all this means will unfold in the rest of John's gospel and the rest of Scripture. This Word, which was with God and was God, was in the beginning with God. Uh, Rather than doing what so many writers do, and we're all tempted by it if we get into studying this, uh, by going to Greek philosophy first about the logos, to understand the term logos or word, it might be simpler just to follow John's lead and go back to Genesis and go to Scripture. Because everything John is doing about Scripture, so there's no need at first to go outside. It's far more helpful just to look at Scripture. And John has alluded to Genesis with his first two words in the Greek to seek the meaning of the word in the near context of the Old Testament, where the Hebrew word often translated logos as debar, the word that's connected with God's activity of creation, his activity of revelation, his activity of redemption, that the word of God does these things because the word was God and was with God. Enough to make you believe in an adversary when we're talking about something so important. All things were made through the Word which existed before all things. Through the Word. And were made through Him. Just to be clear, without Him was not anything made that was made. As in Genesis, not anything was made apart from God speaking. To us here it is revealed that the Word is none other than another person of the singular Godhead. So more mystery has come before us. And if you think you can talk about God without mystery, you're not talking about God. One of the other big problems that human beings always have is we're always trying to get God to fit into our vocabulary. And if we had any sense, we'd know that He won't. Because we can really only talk about Him by contrast with what He has made. And He is different and greater and none the greater for having made everything that was made. And that reality of the Word and everything being made by Him is not only in John 1, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Hebrews 1, verse 2. But moving to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, the ESV reads, full of grace and truth. So John, by the Holy Spirit, doesn't allow for some kind of Greek Hellenistic dualism or mysticism where the divine spirit just assumed some kind of bodily form for a while. He declares that the already declared eternal logos became flesh and tabernacled, tented among us 
not merely via a pillar of fire or cloud by day as Moses in the tabernacle, but in a fleshly, real, tangible body. The greater than Moses is here, and that's the ground from which Jesus proclaimed to his fellow Jews, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That Moses prophesied of me. I mentioned that the English Standard Version translates uh, uh, is the only son from. The New American Standard, if you're using that, says the only begotten from God. Uh, The New International Version says the one and only son who came from the Father. For 400 years, English translation said the only begotten son of God. I could take a whole sermon going through why they differ. I'm not going to do that. I think the most meaningful way to simplify begotten, unique, or only, tying all the translations together, is to simply look to a reality of the source of the Son. Listen closely. If the Son is from the Father always, triune God, eternally, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if the Son in source, in origin, is from the Father eternally. Don't think time. The Father was never without the Son. The nature of the triune God is that the Father begets a Son. No beginning, eternally, and is the only such Son in reality and revealed in Scripture as such, then the Son is eternally generated or eternally begotten from the Father and is also unique. I'm not going to take the time to go over the Greek, but uh, the word son is not in the Greek text. It's there in the sense of being begotten or in the sense of being unique and being from the Father. For if the Father is a Father, then what does He uniquely have? A son. If the Father begets, what do we call what the Father has? A son. But the immediate danger that almost everyone in this room is having right now is we think about human begetting. And every human begetting has a beginning. But if God is eternal, then the relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal. There never was God the Father without a Son or without the Spirit that spirates, that is breathed out eternally from Him, which is why there's a great mystery in the Trinity. And if we ever try to bring the Trinity down into our human language, we diminish it and we diminish it us. The uniqueness comes from His begottenness, being from the Father's nature. We don't need a verse that speaks straightforwardly of begottenness. I could give you ten commentaries out of my library that go into a great deal about this begottenness thing, but the word doesn't have to be in the New Testament, which a lot of people critique that it's not there. A great deal of confusion comes from that. St. Augustine, way back, said it well. When we say begotten, we mean the same as when we say son. Which is why some translations out of the word say son, and some say unique and only, or the unique son. They're all getting at the same core idea. Being Being son is consequence of being begotten, and being begotten is implied by being son, Augustine said. 
I merely add that uniqueness comes from begottenness from the Father. A great deal of confusion comes from failing to understand what I've said between a human birth and God out of his eternal essence, perpetually having his word, his son, who always is and always will be. Without the triune God having triune gods having a person who is his word son, he would not be called father. Think about that. The father's fatherliness is related to his eternally having a son. And the son is called a son because of his eternalness as the one who is begotten eternally, outside of time. Never was a time when he wasn't from the father. Skipping to the end of John 118 verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Uh, He has made him known. Uh, I wish I had included uh, on your outline verse 16. Uh, For from his, Jesus Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses grace and truth came against came through Jesus Christ the reason the word against came to mind is the preposition in the greek between grace upon grace as most translations render it uh, they don't know how to render it easily when it's grace anti grace grace against grace what in the world does that mean i'm going to tell you and you could buy 15 commentaries and not find it When we get to heaven, you can find out if I'm right, but I think I'm right, and I'm not the only one who says it. It's grace after grace, or grace upon grace, grace against grace, but because when the Word of God came in creation, the Word of God then came as the Torah, the law through Moses, and was the law bad news or was it grace? You better say grace. Because it was a gracious covenant God made with Israel that gave them the Torah. The church has gotten terribly confused at, the old, uh, at times, calling the Old Testament a covenant uh, of law. It's not. The covenant with Israel is a covenant of grace. And when the Son of God, Proverbs 8, is wisdom from God, which the end of 1 Corinthians 1 talks about, that is grace even though the Proverbs talk about how to behave. It's the light that John 1 talks about that the Word is the light of man, both by law, by prophecy, and by grace. But now we have grace after grace, grace against the incomplete grace, who is the fullness of grace and truth, because God Himself has come not just as words, but as the living Word and the living person. And I think if you simply read through John about ten times, you'll start saying, oh, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's in this chapter, that it's talking about what was there in a more limited way when the word was the law, the prophecy, the Proverbs. Wow. Triple gratitude. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, the unique God, the begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The triune God will always present mystery to us. But we need to think about the relationships of origin between the three persons if we're going to understand it. need to say this very, very quickly. The Father is the unbegotten one. The Son is the eternally begotten one. 
and the Spirit is the eternally breathed out or spirated, spirited one. And their difference is all in their source. The Son comes from the Father. The Spirit comes from the Father, and some parts of Scripture say also from the Son. So it's both. All three persons are of the same singular substance. God's essence is not divided. You don't add the three together and come up with God. But you have in each one of them the fullness of God because they are all one God triune, but manifest as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a mystery. We, you know, we, we start having to parse it, but we, we can't lose that reality. They're co-equal in will and external work. And while Scripture in places attributes some workings to one person more specifically than another, in other places it makes clear that all three persons are involved in all, except that the Son is begotten from the Father and the Spirit is breathed out from the Father and the Son. In that action, which is an action in eternity, uh, there is a difference. But everything they do in creation they all do, sometimes with an emphasis upon one. I titled the second point, uh, The Crisis of Creedlessness. Um, I want to say that and spend just a few moments this morning. Maybe we can go into it more deeply uh, another time. That, uh, you going to give me another mic? Testing, one, two, three, you got a volume check, am I on? We're good. Okay. One of the things, that we, the reasons we need the creeds uh, is because without the creeds, we very quickly go to this verse or, of Scripture or that passage of Scripture, and we forget the other passages, and we come up with a messed up view of God. Just study church history. Happens all the times. Uh, it's, it's quite uh, common to say, uh, in some churches, I went uh, to a Baptist seminary that I loved being at, uh, and many of the Baptist tradition churches say we have no creed but the Bible. Uh, but the Baptist churches got into real trouble having no creed but the Bible. Uh, they lost their colleges and they lost their seminaries. Uh, they've gotten some of them back to orthodoxy. But the reality was they said we have no creed but the Bible, but what does the Bible say? And what does the Bible say about what? And we need the creeds because we need to understand that uh, this is really later in the outline, but let me say it now so you don't forget it. We need to understand that we are not the first generation that the Holy Spirit illumined the Scriptures to. I mean, have you ever thought about how arrogant that is? Uh, we have a lot of crew people here. I'm not going to name names, uh, but three prominent names in crew. This goes back to the late 1960s. Stayed up all night in Evanston, Illinois, studying 1 John, demanding that God show them exactly how to interpret that verse because they wanted to understand it once and for all to straighten out all the confusion in the church on certain issues that I won't take the time to go into. One of the men in that room wrote a book. I won't name the book because it's an awful book. And one of the other men in that room uh, has agonized in his heart and winced every time he thinks about being a part of that group that night. The creeds would have helped them. 
The confessions would have helped them because they were formed out of the church in spiritual warfare, trying to hold to the teaching of Christ and the apostles and wording it carefully. And one of the doctrines, I've got to shorten what I've got in my notes, but one of the doctrines that has really been drifting away from Scripture and the creeds in the last 30, 40 years is the doctrine of the Trinity and especially the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, some have called it Trinity drift. Jürgen Moltmann uh, felt the classical view brought with it too much of God as king and ruler, and he was very concerned about all the problems that the divine right of kings had caused during history. And if you read him, he started talking about the Trinity as a community of three, as if they were separate persons with three separate wills that all just got along with one another. And one of the problems I have with what he says is even though there's some insights in it, it almost says like the application is, well, we just really need to get along. Well, why did Christ die? Because we don't just get along. And without a new heart and without bowing in humility that only the cross can give us, we never break down all the barriers between ethnicities and tribes and nations. We never count others as equal or better than ourselves. Miroslav Wolf written some wonderful things. Yale Divinity School faculty, a student of Moltmann uh, with a focus on political and public theology, pushed this social definition of the Trinity, as it's come to be called, as a model for church and society. You get a hint from his chapter title, Being as God is, Trinity and Generosity. That the three persons of the Trinity were so generous towards one another and that's a model for the church, and it's a model for society. There's wisdom in some of what Wolf says. But the danger is that both Moltmann and he begin to define personality and persons by modern psychological standards. Whereas scripture defines personhood in the Trinity, not our personhood, personhood in the Trinity as the fact that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father and is the Father's Word. And the Spirit carries out the reality of that word in spiritual power for the Father and the Son. And there are all kinds of verses about the fact that the Spirit came to glorify the Son. And if we make the Spirit into someone, some person who isn't glorifying the Son, we don't understand the eternal Spirit of God. There's liberation theology. There's other things. Let me touch on just one more. Uh, we evangelicals, uh, haven't been immune from this change in the Trinity. Two men that I have great respect for, one of them was a seminary classmate, uh, Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, uh, appreciate much of their teaching, have ignored the classic doctrine of Nicaea to write of the eternal functional subordination of the Son. I know I'm getting theological with you, but it's important. Theology is important. The church has always taught the incarnational subordination of the Father to the Son. The kenosis, Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself. He didn't grasp on to what was rightly his, but humbled himself even to the point of the cross. The church historically has never taught the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. As if the Son was not co-equal to the Father. I mean, I'll put it in crass terms, but it's not like... Uh, 
that the Son in eternity said, Father, I don't want to go. I don't want to take on the body. Scripture points to the reality that Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one will, one set of workings, sometimes with an emphasis more on one or the other in the Scripture, are all involved in everything. And so why do people get into this kinds of stuff? Well, one of the things that Grudem and Ware do in talking about the eternal functional subordination of the Son uh, is they want uh, to revise the authority in the Godhead to give husbands a bigger club to make their wives submit. That's not their words. I'm being hard on them. But do we really think that we need to be able to say to husbands and to wives, even Jesus in eternity submitted to the Father, so you need to submit to your husband? We husbands are really good at carrying big clubs already. What we need is what the Scripture has always been understood in church history to taught until, teach until recent years. That Father, Son, and Spirit had a plan of redemption in which the eternal Son willingly with the will of God in Father, Son, and Spirit humbled himself to the place that as Jesus humbled himself that he might be the model of humility because we are to love our wives, husbands, as Jesus loved the church. It doesn't take anything in eternity. I think you can see in that that there's good motive behind a lot of these things. But we need... And I really need to jump uh, to this. You can read the rest of the notes. To just one paragraph in the Nicene Creed. I've printed the whole, but the one section is bigger. Because the best way, uh, I knew uh, in our church in Tulsa, a secret service agent. Secret service deals with counterfeit money. And he told me what I already knew, but went into more detail. You know how they train those guys and gals? They study real money. They study it till they're sick of looking at it. And after that, they can see differences faster than anybody else on planet Earth because they know the real thing. I think what Nicaea gives us, and there's much more to say, just the beginning of it, to set the context, has three sections. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Very similar to the Apostles' Creed, which came before it. In the last paragraph, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But I want to focus on, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. In other words, no subordination, co-equality, same nature, same essence. And the Holy Spirit uh, is the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Do not diminish your view of who Jesus, because of who the eternal Son is who took on the body that we call Jesus and is now a unique God-man in heaven. Do not diminish him from the Father or diminish the Spirit. Some quick applications. Knowing the Son is the eternally begotten, unique God, the unique Son, shows us 
a rest that no one else can provide. Uh, in the bulletin and on the screen before the service was the verse from Matthew 11. Let me read you a couple of verses right around it. Matthew 11:27. All things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by my Father. This is in the incarnation. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Because we're blind and we're deaf and we're dead and we need to be spiritually awakened to see. Come to me, Jesus says, all who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when we live in Jesus, we have a yoke that is light. Why? Because Jesus isn't just the Torah to us. He isn't just the prophecies and promises to us. He isn't just the Proverbs that describe the wisdom of life that we can learn from and apply in our relationships. He is life itself and dwells among us and in us as his church. The eternal Son, now incarnate, has life to give because he, like the Spirit, is of the same substance of the Father. I put some verses both about Son and Spirit there on the outline. The Creator Son, one essence, one will and one working with the Father and the Spirit, is the Lord of Sabbath rest and can give us rest like no other. Studying this was, uh, I guess I could use the word fun. It was invigorating uh, and a delight because uh, in John 5, 17, Jesus answers his fellow Jews who are criticizing him for working on the Sabbath. Listen to this answer from Jesus. My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. How was he doing that? Because he was saying, you know, God, who's the only, God is the only one that the Jews saw as being free to work on the Sabbath. I mean, he still held the universe together on the Sabbath. He still gave them the sun and the moon and the stars on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I was with God. I was God as the word of God. And I get to do the same thing as my father. We have trouble understanding his fellow Jews and the Pharisees and Sadducees did not. Jesus was claiming to be the only begotten, unique son of God. And he can give you a rest in the midst of difficulty like Job. Yesterday, some of you and many others who were friends of uh, Jerry and Kathy Hertzler and Kathy's death were here. Uh, and I thought how much the rest that only Jesus, because he's the eternal son who's become incarnate, can give us is our rest in the, midder, in the middle of years of trial. And the realities of death. And then I've touched on it, but I close with it. The word was in the world as light, John 1, 5. Read it on your own. And is now fully come to call his own people from the world into one new man. A new united in him people. 
He's not only light as lawgiver, promise giver, wisdom, but as living word and spirit. For God so loved the world, John 3, that he gave his only son. There we are, only begotten son, only son, unique son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I think often we miss the remarkableness of that verse. Because we want to like the world. But in John's gospel, the word cosmos or world is not a positive word. It's the world turned against God after the fall. And so listen to that verse thinking about this. For God so loved his enemy world that it turned against him. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have in him eternal life. That's how we come to the table. Amen. I said it already, this is the Lord Jesus' table, not UPCs, not the PCAs, not the Presbyterians. Uh, As hard as it is to put into our minds, the eternal word, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and invited you to dinner and said, I am the meal. This is my body. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. The spiritual reality that out of which comes in resurrection a new body that is from his life. If if you have put your faith in that Christ and confessed that faith in any church that honors him as that Lord and King and Savior, you're welcome. If you haven't done that yet, uh, I want you to know that the gateway to coming to the table isn't because we're putting up barriers, but it's because we want you to know how big the gap is between God and man. And every one of us who knows the gospel knows we can't open the gate ourselves. We didn't open the gate of ourselves. We're not anything special for being able to go to this table. We just know how special the eternal Son of God is. And we've said to our hearts, by His grace, He is everything. And apart from Him, I can do nothing. So let us know if you need to understand that more. And let me pray to set these simple elements aside and ask God to point us to Jesus. Father, such simple things, bread, but we absolutely need it. And the wine of your blood, how much more we need it than we know. Would you open our eyes to the reality of this redemption? Would you open our eyes to see King of kings?
the Lord Jesus Christ. Set apart these simple elements and set us apart anew as the people of God who have been called out of the world to live in it and love it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.